We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, good evening to one and all. We're in Matthew chapter 27 this evening, Matthew chapter 27, and verse 51. We're going to just take another little chunk of verses here, six verses uh, more precisely, and we're going to just talk about the events surrounding the very end, or we could say just after the Lord's death. Last time we left the narrative here, Jesus had just released his spirit and died. Therefore, after having cried out with a loud voice, we looked at all the words that Jesus spoke leading up to the cross, that one saying about the daughters of Jerusalem and then the seven sayings on the cross and looked at the last ones, um, you know, into your hands I commend my spirit and uh, it is finished. And now we see in verse 51... These words, it says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So, I titled the message this evening, When Jesus Died, When Jesus Died. A number of remarkable events happened at the time of Jesus' death, and you see them. They're just here in the narrative for us. You see the temple veil was torn. You have an earthquake, graves opening, resurrection, and then the testimony of those who were observing, the centurion and other soldiers along with the women. So the narrative is very simple. Let's see what we can learn from it tonight uh, as we look at it. So what happened, first of all, in verse 51? It says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the tabernacle and then in the temple, there was a curtain or a veil, as it's called, that separated the holy place from the most holy place. You remember, we don't have time to talk about all the details, but in the most holy place is the ark, the cherubim over seeing that, the mercy seat, all of that stuff was in there. And um, we can read about it in Exodus 26, 31. Not all the stuff that's in there, but the, uh, the uh, veil or uh, curtain itself. Exodus 26 and verse number 31. It says, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Now that's a 
that's a high calling right there. Can you imagine weaving? Just, just think of a cross stitch, only way more complicated and way huger, <laughs> way, way larger. Verse 32, you shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. And then it goes on to describe about the mercy seat and and that sort of thing, but we won't go there. Uh, instead, I will ask you to turn to Hebrews because, and keep your finger in Hebrews, there's a couple of portions there in the book of Hebrews towards the end of your New Testament in chapter number 9 in which the same material is covered. And it says in Hebrews 9 verse 3, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Uh, This is the second veil. Why is it the second veil? Because to get into the tabernacle itself, you had to go through the first veil. Okay, so we've might have gotten back, kind of confused because we talked about the second one first, but it's the second one. Um, and the, the first one's mentioned in Exodus 26, 36, the one you would encounter first if you were entering into the tabernacle on the way to the most holy place. So you come in through the first veil, there's the table of showbread and the, the, you know, the um, candle and all that stuff, candelabra, and then you go into the most holy place. All right. What's that? Yes. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. That's right. Not counting the wall around the tabernacle. And we should mention, too, by the way, that that tabernacle was designed to be put away and carried. So it wasn't like humongous, you know, limestone structures and things like that. It was temporary, you know, poles, fabric walls. Uh, even this veil was, the, the veil to the Holy of Holies was used to cover over the Ark of the Covenant and everything so that it would be carried covered. So that doubled for that purpose. Um, and we should also remember that the tabernacle was the first version, if you will, after the tabernacle was Solomon's temple, and that had a veil as well, but it had to be constructed of different dimensions. Um, and then, after Solomon's temple, that was destroyed in 586 B.C., then the temple, when the veil we're talking about here, was in Herod's temple. Actually, there's another one. There's the temple that was built in Haggai, Remember? And then that was expanded and beautified and all by Herod later on. So we have four editions of this thing, version one, two, three, and four, ever grander in their dimensions and design. And then there'll be another one, which will be the Millennial Temple. And that will be a wonder to see. Um, The Anchor Bible Dictionary says this about the veil. Because it shielded the sacred ark, 
It was made of the finest materials and crafted with the most elaborate workmanship. It was the premier piece among the series of textiles that were integrated into the tabernacle design. Wonderful words. In the Jerusalem temple now, we're, now I'm skipping past version 1, 2, 3, and going to 4, Herod's temple, that is, uh, the veil was much larger than the tabernacle's veil. Its exact thickness and composition is not something I'm sure about, although I've read different things over the years on this. But as it was quite large, it had to be fairly substantial in its construction. I doubt it was a sheer piece of fabric that you could kind of see through, you know. Uh, this was heavy duty. Um, in the original temple design, Second Chronicles 3 mentions how Solomon commissioned and made a new veil for the temple. So that would have been for revision 2 of the temple. We're on number four. Now, Baker Encyclopedia adds this. Between the holy place and the holy of holies was a double door, and this is of the temple, made of olive wood carved with cherubim, palm trees and flower patterns and overlaid with gold. Inside these doors, veiling still further the holy of holies, was a blue, purple, and crimson curtain made of the finest fabrics and ornamented with cherubim. And then it says this. Next paragraph, the Holy of Holies was 30 feet high. New Manners and Customs of the Bible explains this veil was the curtain that hung between the holy place and the most holy place. It was 60 feet in length. Now, I'm assuming they mean this way. Once you stretch it out, you know how curtains are? When curtains are gathered up, they don't show their whole width. They're kind of bunched up. Anyway, it reached from floor to ceiling. Now, so we don't, I don't know exactly the height of it. I didn't do enough architectural research to figure it out. But yeah, the, in this room, although you're on the, on the uh, live stream, can't see, to the peak is about 22 feet. Yeah. As far as the width. Now, if, it's, if it was only 30 feet high like the Holy of Holies, it would be another 8 feet higher than that. You stand there and just imagine yourself looking up at this veil that's blocking you from entering into the Holy of Holies. I know there's much more interesting research that could be done there. Um, the width of this room is about 38 feet. The length is almost 60 feet, so that gives you an idea of the massive size. If it was 30 feet high by 60 feet wide, then it would, it would cover, I mean, if you laid it out, it would cover most of this room. So it was, uh, it was big. Now, what's this? Uh, by the way, the, the, uh, that last encyclopedia I was reading from said this. Note that it was not torn in two from bottom to top. Notice what it says in verse 51. The veil of the temple was torn in two, and it's very specific that it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The initiating tear was from heaven, not from men, okay? That's a good symbolism there. Now, what's the significance of this? Hebrews 9 discusses the significance of the tabernacle and temple service. In the discussion, it's evident that the way into the most holy place was blocked. Hebrews is careful to tell us that there's a, there's a, a doorway into the tabernacle 
area. That's that curtain all the way around. And then there's a veil into the holy place. And then there's a veil into the most holy place. And you couldn't just go in there any old time you pleased. The high priest could only go in there once a year. One man could go in once a year. The, the way to fellowship, to, to closeness to God was blocked, ultimately by the veil that hung at the entrance of the holiest of all. Not just anyone could enter there, only one person, and that only one day in the year. This symbolized, Hebrews teaches us, that the gifts and sacrifices of the Mosaic system could not cleanse the conscience of the worshipers. Sin was a blockade between God and man. Your sin, God says in Isaiah 59, has made a separation between you and your God. Now Hebrews chapter 10, 19 and 20, and this is really surrounding this is the whole point, uh, theological point really of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us the very opposite of what I just said in this sense. In Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, after he's gone through the supremacy of Jesus Christ and talked about the sacrifice of Christ and all that he did, he basically is saying that old system set aside. We have a new way, a new way to God. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil is the flesh of Christ. Here the author of Hebrews is making a likeness between the curtain in the temple and the body of Christ. The veil was torn. The body of Christ was broken. It was through that breaking of his body that we have access to God. And we have boldness to be able to access the very presence of God. And we're not just talking about in prayer. We have that, but we have access to God's life, to, to fellowship with him, to a connection with him only because Jesus has torn that veil from top to bottom and opened the way for us to have access to God. It's a tremendous, tremendous theological truth. Verse 51 also says, at the same time, the earth quaked and the rocks were split Um, this is portrayed by the author here as a supernatural event, both in timing and in effect. Now, could it have been a natural earthquake? Eh, I mean, I suppose. But the timing was too perfect to be a coincidence. So whether God used the means of an earthquake, um, who knows. But Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the earth being shaken once more. Hebrews 12, 26 whose voice then shook the earth, but now he promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So there's been a shaking of the earth, and at various times God has done that in a supernatural way, but there's going to be another significant shaking in the future. Haggai 2.6 mentions this shaking of the earth. Somehow, to me, it seems that the death of the Creator caused the earth to shudder. It couldn't imagine how its creator had just been killed. 
Something was disturbed, I like to think, in the basic forces of gravity and electromagnetism because the one who holds all things together was killed by sinful men. In this supernatural time, timing and supernatural event of this earthquake made that clear. This was no normal death on a cross. These uh, soldiers who were grizzled in their ability to kill people on the cross. They had no qualms about doing that to fellow human beings, yet when they saw Jesus died and the earth moved under their feet, they had to think, man, something is going on here. Jerusalem will again be shaken in a violent way in the tribulation in Revelation 16. It says, we don't have time to turn there, but it tells us that a greater part of the city will fall in this earthquake and cities around the world and the different nations will also be destroyed in this earthquake. If you really think about it, just when you look at the earth's crust made up of all these tectonic plates, what stops them from always being, you know, always doing this and shifting and bumping and rubbing and, and letting loose and sudden movements? And all, what stops that from happening? What, why is it that we don't have more terrible disasters. Well, there'll be a big one, a really big one there in the tribulation. Verse number 52, then we have this odd situation of the resurrection of the saints. In 52, it says, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised. Now, it seems by position of the text here in the the same sentence that we're in, it seems that a side effect of the earthquake was that it disturbed a whole lot of graves of the Old Testament saints. Graves, it says, were opened. So tomb, tombstones were you know, rolled away or moved from their places. Something like this happens from time to time in modern natural disasters. Have you ever read about some of this? Uh, I saw a news article from 2016, I think. There were caskets floating down the streets down south. Oh, yeah. Suppose there's a flood and it ravages an area and affects a cemetery. Coffins are sometimes exposed in such events. For example, after the Hurricane Ida Category 4, fall 2021, made its way through Louisiana, many coffins were moved out of their resting places some floating down streets, many strewn in various places miles away from where they were originally buried. So no surprise that a catastrophic uh, seismic event can cause such things to occur. In this case, though, the text says that many bodies of the saints were raised. They weren't just disturbed. They were raised from the dead. They were seen by many people in Jerusalem. The record shows that there were many eyewitnesses to these resurrections. So we're not asked to believe um, things that are um, unattested, although obviously I would grant that we have just one attestation here in written form, and that is Matthew's gospel. This is not recorded in any of the other gospels, but he's recording the eyewitness accounts of many people who saw these people raised from the dead. Now, what is the significance of this? We looked at the significance of the veil being torn from top to bottom. What about this? Well, Christ defeated death at the cross. Some immediate fruit of his work was the resurrection of a number of believers from years gone by. Now, the Bible doesn't name any of them. We don't know who they are. 
They may have been raised like Lazarus to a natural body, but it seems more likely on my current reading of the situation that they were raised in glorified bodies and some time later then taken up into heaven that way. In this way, Jesus demonstrated his mastery over death even though he was in himself dying. He was master over death even in death. That makes sense because he said, as we said last time, I lay my life down, I take it up again. I have that authority from the Father. Now, I, I think I said immediate fruit of Christ's work. At least I did in my notes. There was some immediate fruit of it. I didn't necessarily mean, though, that the moment Jesus died that these people were resurrected. The timing of the events is always a little bit unclear when I read this because if you look at it, it says, bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. You see that? And appeared to many. So did they rise immediately when the graves were opened or were the graves opened and they stayed in there for a little while, then they rose again from the dead? It's a little unclear. Um, but I, I think I take the first view, that is, that the graves were opened by the seismic activity, and finally Sunday morning people came out of the graves. Um, and I think that's because their resurrections are correlated with Jesus' resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 20 says that Jesus was the first fruits of them who slept. And so if he is to be the first fruits, it seems to me that he would rise first and then Immediately after his resurrection, you'd have all these other saints coming out of the graves, and that would favor that interpretation of a later you know, resurrection. So immediate, don't take it the wrong way. When I say immediate, I'm saying you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, from our perspective, 2,000 years distant, it doesn't matter. I mean, it didn't matter to the people that were there either because they said Sunday afternoon, there's people that they knew were dead who aren't dead anymore. So God can do that. In fact, there comes a day in which the Son of Man will speak to those that are in the graves, and all who hear his voice will rise again from the dead, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. That's a tremendous truth. Fourth event that occurred here, the admission, or I should maybe say exclamation by the centurion, and his fellow soldiers. Look at verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Now it was their turn to be afraid. They had put three men on crosses, and those men, in human terms, were probably afraid of what was going to and what was happening to them. Now their turn. The centurion was observing all of this very carefully. He had never seen a crucifixion like this one. Joining him were his fellow soldiers guarding Jesus. What were they guarding him from, by the way? Well, maybe being assaulted by the crowds or maybe being stolen by his disciples, taken off the cross. I don't know. But they, you know bandits being what bandits are, if one of their fellow bandits is on the cross, they might try to go get him down and save his life. Anyway, they were there guarding. The text tells us that the earthquake and the other things that they had seen convinced them. Now, they probably didn't see the veil of the temple torn into. They were outside of the city, remember, uh, doing this crucifixion. But they could have heard about it if somebody sent, you know, 
I mean, how fast would news have spread about that? You know, not quite as fast as Twitter, but pretty quick. Uh, you know, Internet news was flying mouth to mouth, and they were getting the news out that, did you hear about the temple veil being torn in two from the top to the bottom? But they had seen Jesus on the cross, and maybe they did or didn't see the resurrection of people from the grave. They, they wouldn't have seen it right then if it had happened you know, on Sunday, so we can maybe set that aside. They saw Jesus. They heard his words. They watched how he treated the good thief. They observed how he died. They knew his reputation as a good man. They knew that Pontius Pilate, their boss, could not find any fault in him, and they were killing a man who had no fault in him. They were just doing it to follow orders. With all of that, they admitted truly this was the Son of God. They're making an exclamation of truth based on the very unusual evidence that they saw. You might say, well, they just they didn't know what they were talking about. Well, I'd take their view probably over yours since you weren't there. Uh, just imagine... You know, this is not make-believe here, that you had seen these things with your own eyes. I mean, it's like the surrealist, surreal things that you see today. You know, you think, I can't believe I'm waking up 11 months ago and hearing Russia invade Ukraine again. You know, why are they doing that in the 21st century? It's foolishness. Or any number of other things. You know, I never would have thought so-and-so would have died or such-and-such would have happened or whatever. But take that and times it by a hundred. That's what these guys were seeing. And they knew that he claimed to be the Son of God and he had done miracles that seemed to prove that he was the Son of God and he taught like a Son of God and he, he had no sin charged to him. <laughs> what, tell me what more do you need? What other things do you need? To, to make the conclusion that Peter made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then finally, perhaps most sadly, here in this context, verses 55 and 6, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, which from Mark 15 it seems that her name is Salome. Those are three of, 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 of a group. I mean, it says how many? Many women who followed him. There were many. So we don't know, dozens maybe, a dozen or something. Uh, th this was not that Mary. Yeah. And, the, and James and John... Well, and yeah, earlier on, she was there nearby so that Jesus could speak to John and say, Behold your mother, behold your son. But these women were holding back. Uh, and they've they got the names of three of them. All of these witnesses together certainly established the fact that Jesus died on the cross. So that's another significance of this passage. Against that conclusion can be raised no credible doubt, okay? Uh, I'm not just talking in terms of Christian pretend here, friends. This is historical reality. Jesus died on a cross. No serious historical scholar, secular or religious, doubts that claim. 
you're going to find that world over. Okay? It's very clear. No conceivable way that you can doubt the crucifixion death of Jesus of Nazareth. Too many eyewitnesses testify to it to dismiss that fact. Witnesses including Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, these women, the soldiers, the brothers of Jesus, Mary, his mother, and so on and so forth. Now, you may doubt the resurrection. That's another matter. That's much more disputed. But you can't doubt this, historically speaking. Now, you can't doubt the resurrection either from the Christian perspective, friends. But I understand, I understand more that than I would understand doubting the crucifixion. That's just putting your head in the sand because you don't want to believe that any of this stuff is true. If you, doubt the, if you doubt the crucifixion. These women were watching from a distance away. You can imagine their dilemma, can't you? They could not stand to watch the horrid sight of a crucifixion of a man they loved, a man they served, a man they were with for several years. But neither could they leave. They couldn't see it. They couldn't not see it. They knew him to be the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. He was too important to leave. They couldn't leave, so they compromised by locating themselves a safe distance away. Maybe that would blunt some of the terrible, awful sounds and feelings and sights of being so up close to the crucifixion. If you were a distance away, it would be merciful but you would still see what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you can't, it's just too hard to imagine. So they made that compromise to overcome the grossness of the whole affair, but still they were eyewitnesses of what happened. These are the facts. This is what happened when Jesus died. God tore the veil, signifying that we could have access to him directly through, Je- uh, through Jesus Christ conquered death and provides bodily resurrection for his people. He is identified as the Son of God. Even the unbelievers, the Romans, the Gentiles knew and saw that. And his death was witnessed by many people, even those his close friends who had served him for many years. And so key elements of the gospel of Christ are confirmed by multiple testimonies and accounts here in this passage of Scripture. When Jesus died, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the testimony of these words. Remind us of theological truths, of the resurrection, of access to the throne of God, that bold access that we can have, the eyewitness testimony, the crucifixion of Christ, the devoted women who were there with him watching and waiting to see what would happen, even remembering where his grave was so that they could come back and anoint him on the appropriate day. Lord, help us to be ever thankful for the work that we've, you've, you've magnified by zooming in on it, the last hours and moments of Jesus' life to reiterate to us how important it is, the death of Christ, for sinners such as ourselves. Watch over us uh, that we might take these things gratefully into our hearts and ponder them. Thank you. We will come in a few months already to uh, Good Friday and Easter when we can remember again these events and uh, give thanks for what they mean for our eternal souls. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.